Hey everybody, GPS 220, Clearing the Plains, Part 3. Um, recording this on Monday morning for, sorry, Monday morning, Wednesday morning uh, in anticipation of this afternoon's class. Um, just a few quick notes. Uh, exams will be graded by the end of the week. Um, there will be a quiz next Friday, so plan on that. Um, and yeah, I think that's all I've got right now in terms of administrative things. All right, where have we been? Where are we going? Uh, so essentially, this book moves chronologically, starting with kind of indigenous people, the first contact with Europeans, this uh, kind of meeting of the old world and the new world, as the book describes it. And now we've moved clearly into the 19th century. We're getting into kind of some more modern context, some stories, narratives that you may be familiar with. Um, we're going to talk in particular about one um, very uh, popular narrative about smallpox uh, at the end of the lecture today. But essentially what we're trying to do is bring all kinds of disparate pieces together to try to begin um, to tell a, a, a clear story about sort of what went on. And so we know sort of where that story has been thus far, you know, the problem, I think kind of three major problems that we've identified, the problem of disease, the problem of resource depletion, and the problem of kind of climatic natural events happening. Okay, so in the last chapter, we talked about, you know, this volcanic eruption that created this spread of ash that, uh, that blocked out the sunlight. You know, we've talked about, of course, the, the scourge of smallpox and of uh, tuberculosis. We've also talked about sexually transmitted diseases and some new diseases that would come to the forefront. And then also resource depletion, beavers, um, bison, uh, these uh, animals, the, and these natural elements that have been overhunted uh, because of trade have uh, had a lasting impact on indigenous people. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue into kind of understanding all of these things sort of happening, you know, disease, resource depletion, uh, climate, those things aren't going to leave us. But on top of this, we have some other pieces that we need to acknowledge. And so today we're going to talk about um, that, uh, the kind of consolidation, I guess we might call it, of, of Europe, uh, not of Europe, of Europeans in modern day Canada and all that means. So let's get started. So we talked about the HBC, the Hudson Bay Colony in the last lecture. And at this point, the Hudson Bay Colony has now become the dominant kind of trading uh, center of Canada. Uh, prior, there was some battle between the French and, and the English, but the English have gone on to dominate. What begins to happen is that they begin to streamline many trading posts. They close posts, they merge posts. And so what they do is they create this monopoly on trade throughout the region, especially as we extend from east to west. Not only this, but we begin to see population growth, further depletion of resources, and more disease. You know, this chapter talks about scarlet fever, for example. So we're seeing diseases that, you know, we haven't uh, even discussed yet uh, in the text on top of, of course, uh, the predominant disease of smallpox. As the text says, the depletion of large game along with mortality from epidemic disease and military conflict contributed to territorial abandonment. So as Europeans push from east to west, this forces indigenous people into difficult um, scenarios. They can either fight, and some do, but with fighting comes significant loss, or they can move. And so we have indigenous populations that go further north, further south, or further west. The continued push from east to west by Europeans will uh, have a massive impact on indigenous populations, uh, whether it's between warring with 
uh, Europeans themselves, uh, what become modern day Canadians, or with um, inter uh, indigenous disputes, we might call them, uh, with competing tribes. And so uh, today's lesson kind of ties some loose ends together to try to create this, uh, I think, what is one narrative story to try to understand and make sense of what's going on in Canada and the March West. Okay, good news, perhaps, the arrival of a vaccine. Um, vaccines come to the new world at the beginning of the 19th century, and they slowly work their way from east to west. So the, the discovery of vaccines occur in England uh, in the late 1700s. Uh, they begin to mass produce uh, these vaccines, particularly related to smallpox, um, in the early 1900s. And then they come to the Americas, uh, like I said, early 19th century. So slowly but surely, um, as the production of these vaccines are ramped up, um, these vaccines will be used not only by uh, Europeans, but also by Native Americans, uh, by indigenous people. And so as this works its way from east to west, in time, the smallpox vaccine can very much act as a game changer for the region. All right. Um, the problem is, is that there's very uneven distribution of the vaccine. So, for example, the Sioux and the Plains Cree get the vaccine earlier uh, than the uh, Assiniboine and the uh, uh, Nitsitapi. All right. And so here we have basically indigenous almost conflict over who has access to the vaccine and who does not and who chooses to take the vaccine and who does not. You got to remember that from the perspective of the indigenous population, this vaccine, this European innovation, as it were, um, carries with it a, a, a bit of um, nervousness and anxiety surrounding it. So, what, what, you know, what is this vaccine? What it can it be used for? What are they doing to us, sticking us with needles and so on? Uh, so there is some concern about the vaccine and the safety and what, what exactly it is. Let's look at page 69 and 85. We're going to jump around from both chapters, but look at how vaccine distribution um, has an impact. We're going to start first on page 69. In addition to the protection afforded by vaccination, numerous groups use the time-tested strategy of heading into the bush or onto the plains to diminish the chances of contagion. So again, learning or understanding, we, we mentioned this in the last chapter, but learning or understanding a little bit more how viruses operate. And now again, we don't have a very sophisticated understanding of epidemiology, but there is something that is called contagion. There is spread. There are germs that can go back and forth between people um, and animals, as we find out, actually, throughout the region. At Pelly, Dr. Todd reported that at least two bands, one along the Red Deer River in Manitoba and the other in the Beaver Hills, refused to come to the post for fear of infection. Both groups endured privation by subsisting on rabbits rather than risk infection on the plains, where bison were numerous. So here we have people beginning to understand disease, indigenous people understand disease, so much so that they basically self-quarantine, right? They shelter in place for fear of what the virus will do. Vaccinations performed by Dr. Todd, other HBC servants, and even First Nations people instructed in the procedure were the most significant example of the HBC's medical assistance to indigenous groups in, in the monopoly period. Todd sent one group of, strong, uh, of producers to the strong woods with a lancet and medicine to counter any infection that they might find there, and he, and he quote, took many pains in instructing them how to use it in vaccinating others. 
So here we have an example of the, the new world meeting old world modern vaccinations meeting um, indigenous people. And so this is uh, a really effective means for, of course, stopping the spread, uh, this arrival of vaccination. Now, there will be other issues, as we'll see with contact. Uh, and I think we'll actually see one of those in just a second. All right, let's turn now to page 85. So like I said, we're going to skip around. This is from a memoir from Isaac Cowie in the fall of 1869. This is the very top of page 85. And this is how he described the vaccination process. Secured on bits of window glass, enough vaccine to protect everyone requiring it in the fort from whom the supply was increased sufficiently to vaccinate all the people about the lakes and the Indians visiting them that fall. Those who had been vaccinated at the fort took it out to the plains and spread it so thoroughly there among the Quapel and Touchwood Hills Indians that not a single case of smallpox was ever heard among them. So again, here we have the success of a vaccination program, we might call it, among indigenous people. However, there's another issue at hand. This is the second paragraph. Orders sent to HBC Post to conduct a vaccination program six months prior to the outbreak along the Missouri were never implemented. When the crisis was over, the company conducted a territory-wide vaccination program, the first large-scale public health campaign undertaken in the Northwest. Vaccine was distributed as far northwest as the McKenzie River. A sad irony, however, is that as the HBC sought to end the most virulent disease of the time with some success, its employees infected communities with influenza and other diseases, which kept mortality rates high. All right. Right now we're talking in, with regards to COVID about a second wave, a second wave that could occur at the same time that other diseases are always circulating, in particular influenza. And so the sad irony of these vaccination programs is in attempts to cure one disease, so to speak, um, other problems are created in response. Let's stop here, take a break, and when we return, more from Clearing the Plains. Welcome back. So as we talk about this kind of movement from east to west and the merging of the, the trading post, you know, one of the things that begins to happen, and of course, the delivery of the vaccine is the sort of creation of a, for lack of a better term, we'll call it modern, but a more organized sort of society, okay? And with that organization, it comes economic organization, political organization, and policy. And so one of the things that this chapter points out are, are some of the policies um, that begin to be put into place by the HBC and the various uh, trading outposts. So for example, and we've talked about alcohol in previous chapters, but limits and restrictions are placed on alcohol in terms of its uh, purchase, its use in trade because alcohol begins to be recognized to carry with it serious social problems. Now, everyone knows what can happen with alcohol. That you know, It doesn't take a genius to, to figure that out. Um, but the issue here is think, thinking about ac alcohol through the lens of kind of policy. You know, so you don't want a labor force to be addicted to alcohol. Um, you don't want, 
there to be a relationship between crime and alcohol. So what begins to happen is, whereas in the previous chapters, we saw alcohol being used to really incentivize a sort of destructive behavior um, in terms of the Europeans in relationship to the indigenous, now there is a, a look um, at how alcohol is causing different kinds of harms, right? So instead of it uh, essentially incentivizing bad behavior, now it is creating bad behavior. And therefore, there must be restrictions. I point this out mainly to emphasize this kind of organizational thing that begins to happen. You know, the founding of modern Canada occurs right around the time that we're looking at some of these things today, kind of the mid mid 1800s. Um, so Canada, in terms of its organization, is a much younger country than the United States. But it's it's in this moment that we start to see the fundament uh, the fundamentals, the foundation of the Canadian project sort of solidified. And so policy is the one, one of the ways that you would do that. They begin to think about game conservation. They begin to think about exhausting resources and how that's a big problem. Okay, so conserving the beaver, conserving the bison, conserving the land and the waterways, right? These things uh, begin to be very, very prominent parts of the discussion. And then there's also restrictions on trade and trade posts. Who can trade with who and for what reasons? Um, trade restrictions, are always a big part of any government's policy because, well, you don't want to feel as though that you're, uh, you're being cheated somehow or that someone is making uh, money while you're the loser and all this. Now, it gets back to principles of free trade as well. But uh, the restrictions on the trade and the trade outposts also are a look at kind of a modern political system being set up. Who can you and can't you trade with? And it's an age-old question um, that is answered by every government that has to think about trade and trade relationships. What are some other issues at hand? Changing demographics. We have more native born Canadians, quote unquote. In other words, we're not talking about people that get off the boat from Europe and they're the first generation, you know, on this continent interacting with indigenous people. We're now talking about successive generations of people who have some investment or stake in the land uh, in a way that their ancestors might not have. They, they only know Canada is the point. All right. So that matters. That matters in how people see themselves. It matters in how they see land and territory. It matters in how they see resources. It matters in how they see their connection to other people, especially the indigenous population. We see a growth in intermarriage, relationships among various people, uh, but especially between white Anglo uh, Europeans and native born people. All right. This matters as well. Being able to see your your families connected. How does that impact your relationship and your treatment of other people? Thirdly, growth in other immigrant populations. You know, by the mid 1850s and certainly in the 1860s and 1870s, we see um, populations of people from other parts of Europe, from Italy, especially. But we'll begin to see folks from Eastern Europe in the late 1800s. We know that people from uh, China are already by the 1830s, 1840s in the North American continent. And so this will also have an impact in competition for resources, interactions between various groups of people. Such changes, and this is to summarize everything, such changes, however, continue to squeeze indigenous populations. You know, what's going to be left for an indigenous person? What land, what resource, what waterway, what job? What will be left 
when all is said and done as this organizational thing, this the project of building Canada is taking place, as more and more people come into the territory, as successive generations of people uh, live and stay in that region, it grows the population, it depletes the resources, uh, and the land uh, is not what it once was. Other variables that we need to consider in this chapter, the gold rush. The gold rush has a tremendous impact on uh, settlements, on movement. Um, you know, the, the gold rush people from all over the country, and when I say the country, I'm talking about the United States here, but also from Canada, all over the place are coming to search out gold. Uh, and this has a major impact, again, on the land, on relationships between indigenous people and Europeans and so on. Significance of religious communities and disease. So this is the first chapter that begins to talk about the role of religion in what are called missions. So missions is where you go into the wilderness, go into the forest, go into the plains, where you meet people who are not Christians and you try to convert them. This is exactly what a mission is. And these missions would come from Europe and some of them started in, in the United States and Canada as well. And you would find populations of people who were unchurched or uh, unfamiliar with the tenets of Christianity, and you would set up shop and teach them the good book, as it were. But this had a tremendous impact on uh, disease and the spread of disease. Let's turn to page 88 if we could. Catholics dealt with the suffering by bringing their communities together. Metis communities which had developed around the Catholic missions in Alberta suffered extremely high mortality rates in the summer of 1870. Very few cases were reported inside Fort Edmonton because of quick and effective measures taken by HBC authorities. Outside the Palisades, the outcome could not have been more different. At St. Albert, Albert, a Metis community only eight miles from Edmonton, two-thirds of a total population of 900 were infected. Of those, 320 died. McDougall, whose mission at Victoria suffered over 50 deaths and whose survivors were ordered to disperse, vehemently announced the role of Catholics during the epidemic. Now, the previous page describes basically the difference between Protestant missions and Catholic missions. And Protestant missions had apparently recognized the need for some type of quarantine. Catholics, however, (laughs) wanted to hold services, and this had tremendous ramifications. And so as missions come to the plains, uh, this brings new disease. And of course, the, the gathering of worship, of singing, of holding hands, of being united and coming together certainly has impacts on the spread of disease. The role played by treaties. All right. This cha- uh, these two chapters also introduce us to treaties, agreements between indigenous populations and the Europeans. Um, oftentimes, as we're well aware, these treaties were broken. Uh, but these treaties were, again, a type of organization a type of legal structure that begins to be set up um, in the West in order to modernize uh, the landscape of of what will become Canada. And then railroads. You thought thought horses could move disease quickly. What about a railroad? Um, The railroad coming through obviously has tremendous impacts on the land, again on on resources. Um, we, We know the history, well, at least if you don't know the history, you should look up history. The history of the railroads is a total game changer for the Americas. All right. And the connecting of east to west by railroad has just tremendous implications for politics, for economics, for culture, for the spread of religion, but for the spread of disease as well. All right. 
big topic at hand to close our lecture today. Um, I'm not sure how many of you have heard this before, um, but there has been a long-standing contention that Europeans um, intentionally infected uh, indigenous populations with smallpox. Um, it's been a long-held kind of theory and belief. Uh, I've, I've heard all about it growing up. Um, and one of the things this book tries to do, I think it tries to do a lot of things, but it, it tries to dispel the notion that some, that all aspects of European indigenous relationships involved intentional things. Um, in fact, as, as he points out, our traditional understanding of Europeans getting off the boat and infecting people with disease is not really how it happened. It was a 150 year process that took a lot of time and the diseases that began to circulate um, were not the same diseases necessarily that came over on a boat 150 years before. So what about this question of the smallpox blanket? All right, let's turn to page 81 because this is a, a really important um, topic. And I want to briefly discuss why this matters so much. All right. The first report, we're on page 81. The first report of smallpox among the, uh, the Nitsatapi was in the spring of 1869. Distrust between them and the newcomers was so high that they blamed the epidemic on, quote, the evil genius of an American trader who swore revenge for the loss of his horse to a raiding party. He allegedly purchased several bales of infected blankets in St. Louis and placed them on the banks of the Missouri River, where innocent Indians filched them. They took them. Indians always denounced the reappearance of disease as a deliberate act of wicked white men. All right. So this is where one of the stories of the smallpox blankets come from. In other words, the smallpox epidemic was an intentional um, epidemic. It, it was intended to sow chaos and death on indigenous populations. William Butler, who investigated the effects of the epidemic in Canada, accepted the belief that the disease had been spread by Missouri traders with a view to the accumulation of robes. Belief that the disease was spread purposefully was common during the early settlement period. One suspect was John H. Evans, the notorious American whiskey trader and right-hand man to the infamous Thomas Hardwick. Both were members of the so-called Spitzy Calvary, Wolfers responsible not only for the Cypress Hills Massacre of 1873, but also for the lesser-known Sweetgrass Hills Massacre of 1872. Now, hang on, we're getting there. Even recent works on the whiskey trade attribute at least partial blame for the epidemic to the actions of a vengeful trader. Again, someone trying to do something intentionally to harm the indigenous population. Margaret Kennedy concluded that, quote, one band of black feet were thought to have contracted the pox from a man who set out to revenge himself for some grievance the former had caused on him. Infected with smallpox himself, he collected all the scabs from his body, rubbed his shirt in them, and left the shirt on a trail used by the uh, Picani on the Highwood Creek. Hugh Dempsey has shown that the legend of the smallpox blanket is apocryphal. In fact, pure fiction while acknowledging that the story of the intentional spread of disease as a tool of genocide, quote, has gained a life of its own and will continue to be told and retold as historical fact. So this is a book that's pretty densely written. Everything in the book is cited somewhere. There's some evidence for the claims, at least most of the claims as we see them. 
there isn't a lot of evidence um, for the smallpox blanket theory. Um, as it is stated here, it is a story that is apocryphal. Now, what does it mean to be an apocryphal story? It does not mean that it is a lie. It just means it's told so often it becomes the truth. I want to say that again. It doesn't mean that it's a lie. It means it's a story told so often it becomes the truth. We don't really have evidence for this story. We maybe have one case of a man, one man, who tried to intentionally spread the disease because he was mad about something. But we do not have a wholesale pox-infected blanket story um, that has any evidence that we can cite. Uh, the reason I think this matters is because, you know, getting hung up, and, and we're speaking now as kind of historians and researchers and political scientists, you know, getting hung up on um, things that we can't prove. We're, we're not saying they didn't happen. We're saying we, we don't have evidence of it. Getting hung up on these things can get us down some rabbit holes that we ignore things that we can prove. So if one of your intentions in this book, maybe I'm not going to use the right word, for, maybe intention is the wrong word. If one of the things that you want to get out of this book is to show the relationship between the Europeans, and the indigenous and how the Europeans harmed them, you'd first have to account for the ways they harmed them unintentionally, right? Bringing disease unintentionally that it circulated for 150 years and then finally, right? But there's also, of course, evidence in the book of, of intentional harms, especially the use of alcohol and knowing what that would do to populations of people that had no understanding um, initially of what it could, could and couldn't do. And then also the story that we learned in the last chapter of the kidnappings and the ransom. Um, there's evidence, uh, plenty of evidence that shows the relationship between Europeans and uh, indigenous people as being fraught uh, with intentional harms. The smallpox blanket theory, as Dashik understands it, is not one of them. Doesn't mean that, that there isn't some truth out there regarding it, but there's no evidence to support it as Dashik understands it. So let's stop here. Um, exams will be graded, I promise. And then next Friday, next Friday, a quiz. All right. See everyone Monday.